Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome to The Critic podcast. For the first time in half a century, Britain is planning a major permanent Royal Navy deployment in the seas of Southeast and East Asia, led by the new aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth. But how important was the Royal Navy in Asia-Pacific between the 1830s and 1960s? In this podcast, the critics' political editor Graham Stewart discusses with Professor Jeremy Black, author of Geopolitics and the Quest for Dominance, whether returning the White Ensign to the Pacific is a welcome sign of global Britain or a misguided exercise in post-imperial overstretch. Increasing tensions between China and Britain, and indeed across the South China Sea with China's uh, neighbours, has led to the possibility of Britain resuming a role uh, for its armed forces in Asia-Pacific. Well, of course, we've been here before, what was once called the China Station, uh, and then um, grew into a large Royal Naval presence in the Asia-Pacific area, uh, was a key feature of British defence policy uh, up until 1968, when Howard Wilson's government decided to close Britain's bases east of Suez. Um, Jeremy Black, we find ourselves now, we've, Britain has just reopened uh, in 2018 its first permanent naval base in the Middle East, in Bahrain, first for over 50 years, and now there is talk of the new aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth being based possibly at Singapore, possibly uh, as a guest somewhere in, in Japan, but with the intention of uh, policing the South China Sea and, and the Pacific area more generally. How different would an engagement of this kind be to the role of the Royal Navy in that region in the 19th century? Well, very different because there is a major power, China, which has now a significant navy, which was not the case with China for uh, the 19th century. And on the other hand, Britain, which in the 19th century was the world's leading naval power, is not uh, such today. And um, when, when we look at the role of the Royal Navy, particularly in the 19th century, in the Pacific. The role was primarily to guard British colonial possessions, or did it have a, a wider strategic role in terms of, of keeping open wider navigation? Um, well, I mean, first of all, the British uh, presence in the Pacific was always fairly marginal in the 19th century. The prime areas of naval concern were the route to India, uh, which meant the Atlantic, the Mediterranean, and the Indian Ocean. And after the uh, conflict with France finished in 1815, um, the British were most concerned uh, by the possibility of Russian expansionism affecting the route to India. It leads us to the Crimean War in 1854-56. And indeed, it's a factor that encourages interest in the Far East. Um, during the Crimean War, for example, British warships all 
albeit not the bulk of the fleet, are engaged against the Russians in uh, Kamchatka. Uh, there are concerns in British colonial possessions, places like Sydney in Australia, about the possibility of attack by Russian warships. And it's very much concern about Russia that uh, encourages late 19th century British interest in um, those seas. And then what happens is with the 1902 Anglo-Japanese naval treaty and with Britain at this period increasingly concerned about the rise of German naval power. In effect, the British um, accept that Japan, which is their ally, um, is going to be the prime counterbalance to uh, Russian naval expansion in the early uh, 20th century. And thereafter, I think it's fair to say that although there are British warships, uh, Singapore is a naval base, Hong Kong, to a lesser extent, is also a naval base, uh, Britain is fairly marginal um, in the Far East. Uh, the leading uh, powers in contention are Russia, Japan, and after 1898, when they established themselves in the Philippines, the United States. And of course, Britain um, sort of, as it were, uh, develops a uh, naval profile as its relations with Japan deteriorate in the 1930s. But that does prove a form of overstretch, and that overstretch is dramatically uh, demonstrated in the sinking of the Prince of Wales, um, a very modern battleship off the coast of Malaya um, in the early days for Britain of the Pacific War with, uh, with Japan. Just to take a, a, a couple of steps back before the, we get to the, the Second World War in the Pacific, uh, many listeners will be aware of the rivalry between Britain and Russia over India in terms of the great game, uh, but perhaps less aware of the rivalry in the Pacific. How sizable and significant was Russia's Pacific fleet and was it really a threat to India, or was it something that, that the Royal Navy played up to be greater than it really was in, in, in the second half of the 19th century and up to the beginning well, the of the 20th? The aspect of the Russian naval threat to India was in the Mediterranean. In other words, the development of Sevastopol as a naval port from the 1780s, uh, the concern that, um, that uh, Russia would be able to project its naval power into the Mediterranean, uh, particularly by the end of the 19th century in alliance with France, the two powers were allied. Um, that was a matter of great anxiety for the British and helped to lead to the forward projection of naval power there, the establishment of base in Cyprus, the dispatch of the navy to the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, etc., etc. Compared to that, the Far East is, as you say, marginal. The Russians developed Vladivostok as a port from 1860 onwards, uh, and that becomes significant. But um, if you're looking at the Russo-Japanese War of 1904 to 1905, alongside Russian uh, naval units that are permanently uh, in the Far East, the major uh, Russian naval deployment there is in fact a fleet that had sailed all the way from the Russian bases in the Baltic. And remember, with um, long-distance battleships being coaled up, and you do need to find coal supplies, um, in that period, um, it was possible to project power at that range, although it obviously was not rapid. But, you know, I've already mentioned the Americans uh, developed the Philippines as a base. But for the British, yes, it's marginal. And I think, um, and again, I do want to point out that although 
any reading from the past to the present and backwards always risks enormous uh, difficulty and there are almost discontinuities. When you used that phrase, was the Navy trying to push its way into the defense of India? I think you are actually pointing to a real matter of significance that in the late 19th century, um, the Navy is, as it were, looking for enemies because the the prime commitment to imperial expansion is of forces on land, um, developing imperial possessions and then protecting them and involved in conflict accordingly. So as far as India is concerned, the Afghan wars are the most obvious example, but there's also more generally uh, problems on the northwest frontier, etc., etc. So you have navalists who are busily arguing that they are playing a key role in this. And, um, uh, you know, the, the idea that strategy is politics-free is a completely naive idea. Much of the work on strategy is deeply flawed from that postulate. Um, and on top of that, uh, people need to remember that you have politicians both in and outside uniform. In other words, the leading figures in a navy or an army or in an air force today are as much politicians as their civilian counterparts, and they are arguing for the particular interests of their institution and its particular strategic vision or their view of its strategic vision. One of the key aspects of strategic vision at the outset of the First World War was the necessity of the Royal Navy not to be overstretched, to concentrate on uh, the uh, Atlantic theatre and the North Sea in the war with Germany. The, the entry of Japan on the Entente side in, in 1914 is significant because the Japanese Navy frees up uh, some uh, of the Royal Navy's Pacific theatre uh, ships to be redeployed. It, it, what, I can see the purpose for the British of having the Japanese uh, on side in the First World War and the Japanese Navy on side, but what was in it for the Japanese? Oh, well, the Japanese benefited several respects. First of all, their navy had benefited from British naval technology, but secondly, from Japan, sorry, from Germany, they gain um, the German colonies in the Western Pacific, the Carolina and the Marshall Islands, which the Germans had acquired, purchased from Spain. They also gain the German base Tsingtao on China. Um, so it's, uh, it's a significant benefit uh, for Japan. Um, and, uh, you know, the Japanese are also concerned to show that they are a leading power. In fact, it's interesting to see the Japanese send naval units into the Indian Ocean as part of the chase for German surface raiders. And the Japanese, in fact, send uh, naval support to the British in the Mediterranean. I mean, albeit minor support, but, you know, again, as part of their determination to show that they are a significant power. And after the war, of course, in the Washington Naval Treaties and the questions of how large the uh, respective fleets are to be, um, there is this argument as to whether, and you know, it's a controversial argument as to whether Britain foolishly uh, threw away its um, alliance with Japan in order to be allied to the United States. Now, obviously, that's a highly contentious matter, and I think it's fair to say that uh, you know people will have their own 
their own views on that. I mean, scholars will have their own views about that. Um, but it's something that's rather interesting because, again, it underlines what we're talking about, which is the extent to which there is not a clear and obvious strategic outcome when you're looking at the problems affecting states. And how significant in the British calculations were the fact that Hong Kong needed to be defended, Singapore, the Strait Settlements, Malaya uh, needed to be defended as colonies. Were it not for the possession of these colonies in the interwar period, might the British just have left the Pacific theatre entirely, left it to the Americans and the Japanese? Um, yes, basically. I mean, obviously there was the desire in the Washington and then London Naval Treaties to provide some sort of overall agreement over the there's a respective size of um, navies. But if you're looking at Britain's prime strategic commitments immediately after 1918, you've got rebellion in Ireland, you've got rebellion in, the, in Egypt, you've got rebellion in Iraq, you've got the Third Anglo-Afghan War, and you've got um, the intervention in the Russian Civil War, which incidentally is a major naval commitment, particularly in the Baltic. Now, what then happens subsequent to that is there is a lot of uncertainty in the context of the so-called Geddes Acts, uh, cut in public spending, as to how best to spend money on the military, what you ought to be spending it on. And I think it's fair to say that the respective services have their own views. There are also conflicts within them, and those are significant because that remains the case, for example, if you look at the last 20 years of the British Navy as well. Um, and on top of that, um, there is the the question of you know what where where is the strategy being driven from? In other words, what is Britain's main um, a potential opponent in the 1920s? Uh, and most analysts at that stage would have said the Soviet Union. And in which case, how best to respond to that? Um, and obviously, we end up in the 90, by the night, late 1930s with a very different geopolitics. Um, and but again, you know, you've got Japan in Manchuria, then Italy in Abyssinia, and Germany very much by the Munich crisis. Um, that again, you know, doesn't determine exactly how you should uh, you put priorities between different areas of military activity. Well, one of the large priorities, of course, was the construction of the Singapore Naval Base, uh, commissioned in the 1920s and largely built during the, the 1930s at vast expense. I, I've seen various estimates which suggest about a tenth of British defence spending at one stage in the 1930s was going into the construction of this enormous uh, naval base, which had the, the largest dry dock in the world. Um, why was so much resource pumped into a naval base in Singapore when uh, the, the, you know, it was a secondary theatre and there wasn't the same commitment of troops and air force to that region? Well, you may, may well ask. I mean, I think it's fair to say that it took quite a while 
uh, to finish. Uh, so in other words, they'd started it off with high expectations and um, money didn't um, materialize quite as rapidly as you suggest. It became a key element for naval planning. Uh, particularly with the argument that it was necessary in the event of confrontation with Japan to have a base from which the uh, from which the navy could operate and to which it could operate to which you could move warships from distant stations hong kong was felt to be too far uh, too far advanced too much exposed to japanese air attack and also in fact had other drawbacks as an anchorage um I think it's fair to say that um, if you're looking at military activity at the early 30s, for the British perspective, one of the factors encouraging an emphasis on Singapore is that Trincomalee, which had in the coast of Ceylon, now Sri Lanka, which had been a uh, a major anchorage is major na natural anchorage was perceived as too far away. There was a determination in the event of confrontational conflict with Japan to keep Japanese warships from entering the Indian Ocean. And indeed, the fall of Singapore was followed by Japanese warships moving into the Indian Ocean, albeit uh, only relatively briefly in April 1942. Um, but also the Navy benefits in the beginning of the 1930s by the fact that at that point, um, the Army isn't involved in any significant um, insurrection in the Empire, whereas by the late 30s, you've got the Fakir of Ippi on the northwest frontier of India. You've got the Arab Rising in, in Palestine, uh, both of which are major commitments of force. And of course, you've got from 1933 onwards, but more particularly from 1935, um, greater concern about Germany. And from that perspective, Singapore and the Navy's determination to project a lot of power to the Far East starts to look a bit questionable. And when the Germans under Hitler renounce the Anglo-German naval agreement, when they build uh, and press ahead with the building of their pocket battleships, um, these become uh, more serious issues. Now, you could argue, if you want to play with difficult, uh, in difficult terrain, that the Singapore strategy is dependent on the Anglo-German naval agreement. In other words, that appeasement may be the wrong term, but I can't think of a better one, uh, as far as Germany is concerned, may be a precondition for uh, the projection of, or the planned projection of a large naval force to Singapore. Um, the British at every stage had imagined that any war with the, what becomes subsequently the Axis powers, would be sequential. The problem that is to hit them, of course, by the winter of 1941 to 42, is that they are facing simultaneity. And simultaneity is, all, in other words, fighting Germany, Italy, and Japan at once. And simultaneity is always a key problem. And indeed, uh, strategy is often really about trying to avoid simultaneous problems. Um, and where you go wrong is where you needlessly or sometimes you can't help it, provoke more than one conflict at once. So give you a classic example, um, you can debate 
both ways. I mean, I've done so. What would have happened in the British war with the, with the American rebels, the American War of Independence, had France not come in in uh, 1778? Once France came in, the British are involved, and even more when Spain as well comes in in 1779, the British are involved in a simultaneous challenge, which has been far greater than what had happened earlier. So a lot of the navalist thought predicated on Singapore might have worked if Britain's only strategic challenge had been Japan. Once you have Italy, uh, which had a you know a modern navy, and Germany as well, then it became, to put it mildly, um, problematic, and it becomes damn stupid um, when it's combined with the uh, the Japanese ability to gain the initiative and the particular. Uh, skills the Japanese have in air-launched torpedoes. Well, of course, Britain finds itself in this position of fighting wars on multiple fronts uh, when Japan enters the war. Churchill is heavily criticised for sending uh, the uh, battleship HMS Prince of Wales, state-of-the-art, very modern ship, really just been, been completed its fitting out, um, along with the battle cruiser HMS Repulse, um, this is seen, with the benefit of hindsight, as uh, lunacy as a way of heading off a Japanese uh, um, amphibious assault. Because although these are it, it, the Prince of Wales, particularly a very modern warship, uh, it doesn't have proper air cover. The Malayan air bases are overrun and uh, the aircraft carrier Indomitable that was supposedly to have accompanied this Force Z uh, ran into problems near Jamaica and wasn't deployed. Um, obviously, it was a mistake to send these ships given that they, they ended up at the, at, at the bottom of the sea. But, but was it necessarily a mistake? But might it have been a gamble which, with better luck, would have, would have um, come good? Well, um all military activity involves the management of risk. Let's use that phrase rather than luck. Uh, Phillips, the commander of Force said, proved to be an incompetent commander. The major fault was in fact the navalist fault, as so often the military sloughed off the blame onto the civilian politicians. Had an aircraft carrier accompanied it, the aircraft carrier would probably have been sunk as well. Uh, the Hermes, after all, which was the British aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean, was sunk, as you know, or should know, on, in April 1942. I think it was a force of, from what I remember, 85 Japanese land-based torpedo bombers that sunk the British force, well, 80, using very good techniques. Uh, I mean, that was quite a considerable force, would have been able to sink more than just two British warships. So I think there are a whole host of issues there. I mean, the use of ships as a deterrent only works if your opponent is willing to be deterred. Um, and I think it was problematic, to put it mildly. I mean, on the other hand, if you've got a fleet, uh, you obviously feel called upon to use it. Um, and it would have been, to put it mildly, um, um, shall we say, politically unacceptable to have not made a bigger effort to, um, or a big effort to hold Malaya and Singapore. It's worth bearing in mind that the defeat uh, which you mention off Malaya is just the first stage of uh, defeat subsequently in the Battle of the Java Sea, uh, Java sea um, 
the combined fleet um, i think it's five cruisers i mean it's you know there's british there's australian there's american warships uh, get sunk by the japanese and then again in um when the japanese break out into the bay of bengal on april the 5th 1942 um during the four days that they're there uh, they managed to sink two british heavy cruisers plus the hermes so I think it's fair to say that the Navy itself was not up to the challenge of fighting the Japanese in these circumstances. And that raises a whole host of questions about the use of naval assets. Now, in the biggest strategic pattern of all, which is one, of course, people don't like to think about, which is what do you do in the highest risk, you know, in other words, not your biggest optimism. The major British commitment uh, was the movement, continued movement of oil supplies from the Persian Gulf, which was absolutely crucial to Britain's ability to go on fighting in the Middle East, um, and indeed more generally. Um, the um, eastern uh, section of the uh, Indian Ocean clearly couldn't be held. That was what was shown in April 1942. I mean, the British were lucky. On April the 9th, which is the day in which um, um, Alan Brooke in his diary records that he had heard, wrongly as it turns out, that there was a Japanese invasion fleet sailing for Ceylon. In fact, on April the 9th, the Japanese leave the Indian Ocean they, and the four big carriers they'd sent in are the four big carriers that are to be sunk by the Americans at Midway. So you could argue that it's the Battle of Midway that saves the British from the strategic problem that of overstretch, imperial overstretch, naval overstretch, um, and that this is an unexpected consequence because thereafter no Japanese um, uh, aircraft carrier goes into the Indian Ocean and the British are able to hold the Indian Ocean with, with a minimum of naval force. They, the major British activity thereafter is the uh, attack on Madagascar in 1942. Uh, Vichy held Madagascar, in which the British briefly used two aircraft carriers. But thereafter, as I've said, the British are able to focus their navy on what is probably its prime uh, in, if you're thinking of it in strategic terms, requirements which are protection against of Atlantic shipping against uh, German U-boats, uh, the deterrence of German surface raiders from attacking Atlantic shipping, and then the covering and support of um, amphibious attack on continental Europe. Now, all of those are much more significant than naval activity in Asian waters, and the British do not really powerfully revive a presence against Japan until after D-Day. And after D-Day, which, in which the British Navy takes the larger role than the American Navy, uh, after D-Day, there's a transfer of naval units eastwards. Um, some of them are used, for example, in bombing Japanese-held oil refineries in Sumatra. Um, some of them are used in Japanese waters, you know, British aircraft carriers and other ships off, um, off Okinawa and off Japan in the last stages of the war. And they would have played a role had there been an invasion of Japan in uh, 1946. 
um, but the the notion that um, that the Singapore commitment was a sensible one was was difficult to put it mildly. I mean, to my mind, it's a classic example of a secondary requirement driving uh, primary assumptions in strategy, and of course. That's a mistake, as you know. We've just seen the, that disaster with the response to COVID in which the secondary consideration, the operational problems of the National Health Service, has taken precedence over the primary strategic question, which is keeping the British economy going. Um, and I think and I fear that this pattern of, of just essentially very weak strategic insight because people do not know or understand how to prioritise is one that we're, we seem to be stuck in. Well, it seems to me in 1945, with the defeat of the, of the Japanese Empire, there, there is an opportunity for uh, British strategists in the Far East to retrench, to basically say the United States has got a massive naval presence in, in the Pacific. This is now... Uh, for the, the Americans to police, we are going to withdraw then. And people also talk about the fall of Singapore as being a tremendous loss of British prestige from which the British Empire supposedly never recovered. But, but of course in 1945, Britain does recover in, in Asia-Pacific, Hong Kong, Singapore, we're back. We're back in Hong Kong until 1997, where we re remain in, in, uh, in Singapore until the early 60s. Um, what's this missed opportunity? Should, should, should Britain strategically have just drawn in, in, in its Pacific horns in, in 1945? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, the, uh, in fact, we were in Singapore till the beginning of the 70s. We agreed to go in the late 60s. We were there to the beginning of the 70s. Um, that's a very interesting question. I mean, Britain in 1945 was the second largest naval power in the world, but it was operating beyond, in, in a sense, its capacity. So you get, um, and it's a very good book by John Bropst on British strategic planning in India, and you've got this idea that uh, maybe, in fact, uh, at the end of World War II is an opportunity to expand the British presence in South Asia, be it an, an argument being taken by some of the local people like Olaf Karu. I mean, the reality was Britain was bust, and the, also the reality was the Soviet Union was the prime um, uh, challenge, and that um, this, in many senses, meant that um, the, uh, the, the you know the possibility of World War Three had to be addressed. Now, you're absolutely right. I mean, the British were very reluctant to accept in, with imperial withdrawal, and you can see that as playing a role uh, more lastingly. I mean, I did, I did a book uh, some years ago, the Tory World, which deep history and the Tory theme in British foreign policy, and I drew attention to that to two different strands of Toryism. One strand of kind of on interventionism, which you can see at the present moment, and another strand which you might call a prudentialism, one which was much more focused on trying to keep taxation low and not to get involved in conflicts that didn't involve um, uh, Britain directly. And you can see these strands right the way through. And I tried to dis, you know to 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 chart them from the late 17th century to the mid 20 teens. 
And I think you can actually see that after World War II. You've got all sorts of ideas about strategy, uh, all sorts of ideas of what is practical and necessary, and then the pressure of immediate circumstances. So the British find themselves engaged in the Korean War, which most British people couldn't have found on a map. Um, the um, And that sees, as you know, a significant uh, naval as well as land and air commitment. And then the British conversely decide not to get involved in the Vietnam War. Um, and interestingly enough, that does not cause much of a... Uh, a fuss. I mean, this is the first war in which Britain isn't going to be on the same side as Australia and New Zealand, and, yet, and obviously Britain's major ally is the United States. Uh, but that does not seem a major, a major fuss. And of course, famously, the government decides to abandon the CVAO 01 and 02, the through deck carriers, and instead to focus their naval concerns on uh, European and Atlantic waters. Um, and that represents a major uh, change in British defence policy uh, in the late 1960s. And it's a change which then in turn alters after the Gulf War when Britain returns to east of Suez, uh, albeit in an, an ancillary to American-led coalitions, as in the two Gulf Wars, and maybe now into confrontation with China. And I think it's reasonable to say that the strategic wisdom of that is problematic. I don't think there's any doubt at all about that. It's based upon the idea that you can determine the equations of deterrence. It's based on the assumption that you can um, uh, you know that you can know how your opponent is going to respond, and I think that that is questionable. Not least, we have allies who are problematic. You mentioned in your introduction that we might be based, the fleet might be based at Singapore. Actually, the Singaporean government doesn't want the British fleet there. The Singaporeans don't want confrontation with China. Uh, it's more likely that British warships would be based at Darwin in, in Australia or in uh, Japanese ports. Um, so you've also got what the possibility is of an American change in policy, either under President Trump or under a post-Trump administration. So the British are in a very, you know, there is this confidence that we need to play this role. Um, and there is a possibly an underrating of the risk. And the most obvious risk is a simple one. Let us say that... Um, you know, you have a recurrence of the episode with the USS Maine in 1898. Your your listeners will remember that this major American battleship has an explosion in the boiler room, um, which, um, um, you know, is variously attributed to accident. But, of course, the uh, there is a claim made in the United States that this is Spanish sabotage. This is, you know, to do with the Cuba thing, etc., etc. Well, you know, let us be clear. I'm, I'm I hope sincerely nothing happens of this type, you know, but let's take the worst case scenario because you need to think in worst case scenarios. Let us say that without attribution, the, uh, the aircraft carrier is sunk. Um, what exactly are we going to do? We might be 90% sure, we may even be 100% sure that the Chinese did it. What are we going to do? Are we going to go to war with China? Are the Americans going to go to war with China? I mean, I think one needs to be very aware that deterrence is based upon an assumption that it is going to work. 
And uh, it might well do. And quite frankly, I think Chinese policy in South China Sea, in Xinjiang, in Hong Kong is is really testing the boundaries, to put it mildly. I mean, you know, um, geopoliticians talk about uh, how you have to try and get uh, new great powers to accept their place in the international system without conflict with the previous great powers. That's true, but that works best if the new great powers uh, are willing to accept most of uh, the existing rules, but they might not be willing to accept the existing rules or most of them. So you have to determine what you think is the appropriate response to that. That is a difficult matter. And quite frankly, I think we ought to have another discussion on that um, because we've only got so much time. But, you know, these kind of geopolitical issues are ones which then are refracted in terms of the individuals and institutions involved. So if you were, let's say, a British army strategist, you might say at the present moment that the most significant thing that that has happened in the last month, uh, the last two months maybe, was the inability of the police to contain um, uh, demonstrations in Bristol and London and the sort of sense of, you know, the national social fabric being under challenge and that maybe we need to remember that, you know, having uh, state-of-the-art air or naval facilities doesn't necessarily give you domestic stability. You know, that's an argument. Uh, Or you might say that we should be more concerned about Estonia and the possible pressing on NATO, which we do have existing um, uh, you know, c- treaty commitments, uh, and where indeed we do have a small military presence in the Baltics at the moment. Um, and we should be more concerned about that than we should be concerned about um, uh, waters off Asia. These are difficulties. They need to be discussed. One shouldn't just assume that one commitment is problem-free on a bigger on a bigger uh, timescale, a bigger, uh, bigger, as it were, geographical framework. And I think it's very interesting. You know, you've got, obviously, you've got a large military lobby now on the, the ex-military lobby on the, uh, in the Conservative Party. You've got navalists who are very clean to find something to do with these uh, supercarriers. Um, so that in many senses, as it were, the legacy of um, Gordon Brown deciding to keep jobs for uh, Resythe and the legacy of the, um, you know, very poorly drafted contract with BAE Systems seemed to be directing British policy. And you've got influential figures looking to um, people like Mike Pompeo in, in America and thinking, you know, this is the way we have to project our, na- our foreign policy, in which case we need to have a public or maybe uh, not public discussion about how that measures up to the implications for other defence tasks uh, in NATO, in the North Atlantic, in Britain itself, and we need to think about those. But at the present moment, it seems there's a very a very disjointed character, shall we say, to British strategy and to British foreign policy. You raise the uh, nature of Gordon Brown having had Recife in his constituency with the very expensive contracts to build the two aircraft carriers. I mean, I, I just wonder whether one of the great accidents of history uh, could be that you know, if we do find ourselves in some form of confrontation with, with China, if, if one or other of these aircraft carriers is, is deployed into the region, uh, whether this you know, can all be traced back to the fact Gordon Brown happened to have his constituency in a, in, in a, in a uh, shipbuilding uh, port. Um, it, 
Is it really, do you think, a case of we've built these aircraft carriers, one of which may be mothballed, but we've built these aircraft carriers and we, we need to have something to do with them, or, or is that too trite? No, I think that's an element of it. I mean, there are many other elements, of course. I mean, the, uh, there is obviously the tension in, within, in, within the Navy as to whether uh, manned flight had a future. As you, I mentioned earlier, um, groups such as the Navy or the Army, you can split down. I mean, the Navy, there are classically four different constituent bodies, um, the uh, fleet air arm, the submariners, those who, as it were, to use a naval phrase, drive surface warships and the Marines. And you can very much see the supercarriers as an example of destabilizing naval strategy and then possibly destabilizing the entire strategy. So there was a particular group of navalists um, who very much wanted the carriers and that coincided with the determination of the British governments of the 2000s to play a major role in the international stage, plus the interests of BAE Systems, plus the interests of Gordon Brown, both as Chancellor of the Exchequer and then as Prime Minister. Um, the Cameron government thought seriously about uh, decommissioning, um, abandoning the project, um, but they found that the contracts had been drawn too tightly. So, yes, I think there is a degree of incubus here. Um, there are several things. I mean, I, when I raised these points some years ago, I was told, oh, well, these carriers had been future-proofed, quote, that was the phrase used to me, till 2060. And I thought that was absolutely ridiculous, and I continue to think that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, you have in in fact, uh, growing capacity for unmanned uh, flight. Um, you also have the fact that if you spend so much money on two particular warships, you're investing in obsolescence because they will become obsolescent. They, you could argue they're already obsolescent. And you should instead be spending the money for the Navy on less expensive warships that you can withdraw and replace on a rolling program. Um, obviously, if you have two major or even just one major warship, you then have the problem about needing to uh, protect that. So I'm a great believer in a strong navy. I just don't think we've ended up with a strong navy. I think what we've ended up with is an overcommitment to a particular type of navy, and I think that is deeply flawed. Um, separately, on the foreign policy issue, you're talking about Britain trying to define a role for itself in the post-Brexit uh, uh, scenario. And, you know, there are a whole host of different uh, opportunities on offer there. I mean, you might have argued that this was an opportunity more to consider um, strengthening NATO. That might have been an argument, um, instead of which we've ended up, um, in some respects, in a serendipitous fashion uh, with this, uh, because it essentially conforms to what the Americans would like us to do. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with being <laughs> online with the Americans. America is our great power ally. That's important, but it doesn't mean you just do what they want. I mean, one saw that very much uh, with uh, the decision, which was politically and strategically very wise, to stay out of the Vietnam War. And sometimes your best, uh, if you're a good ally, sometimes what you actually have to say to your other ally is, you know, we wish you well, but we are not going to support you on this. And you've got to then be able to, you know, survive the storm and the fuss. But I think there is a specific problem that there are 
are a group of relatively poorly informed uh, ex-military um, conservative MPs. I'm a conservative, of course, but conservative MPs, many of whom, who quite frankly, their intellectual level was that they made it to captain, major or colonel. These were not brilliant people. And yet they think of themselves as great strategists who ought to be um, running, running the country. And they're not doing a terribly good role of, way of it. Well, just to uh, uh, just a final question, if I may. Uh, whatever the wisdom of the construction of the aircraft carriers and, and the wisdom of, of wherever they're deployed, uh, aircraft carriers are, are very vulnerable unless they're part of a larger group with, with other ships acting on, on picket patrol. Uh, does this therefore mean that really we are going to have to build a lot more frigates, destroyers, other surface uh, ships to protect this carrier group, and given the, the likely constraints on defence spending in, in our, in our post-COVID recovery, uh, is this really very bad news for, for the Army and the RAF? In essence, defence spending is now going to be focused on the Navy. Well, it certainly has enormous implications. I mean, um, a friend of mine who is um, senior in the defence world told, tells me that there is an annual lunch of people of his position and that um, um, two years ago the topic of the discussion was uh, were the supercarriers wrecking the Navy budget? Last year the topic of discussion was were the supercarriers wrecking the defence budget? Um, so you can make your own views. I mean, my own comment is um, I'm un uh, uneerily reminded of the disturbances in uh, Cairo that brought down the Mubarak regime in 2011. I mean, Mubarak had these state-of-the-art jets flying over Cairo, and it didn't make a hapeth of difference. So I would say to you, if we have, over the next 10 years, renewed chaos in Northern Ireland... Uh, if we have um, big scale, large scale disturbances in British cities, uh, what exactly is the value of the commitment we are taking on in able in in protecting uh, the country from that you know in that perspective? Well, we'll have to leave that question hanging. Professor Jeremy Black, author of History of Geopolitics. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to the Critic podcast. Why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.